On the night before I left Sydney, I sat with my mum in her living room. My mood was depressed. Hers was a typical mix of ease and angst, comfortable in her own skin, yet tortured by the fear that her children might be suffering. She asked me a question I'd been asking myself. What did I hope to get out of this trip? I said that for as long as I can remember, I've been searching for the sound of my own voice, that I hope to discover which of the contradictory stories I tell myself about who I am and what I'm doing is true. That it would save me a lot of time, spent turning down paths for the sake of strangers who scrawl their directions on the inside of my head. At which point she seemed a little less at ease, but to her credit conducted no further investigation. Instead, we simply sat together, silent in the wake of my confession. Early in the piece, there were times I'd wake from restless sleeps full of frightful dreams to a feeling of intolerable dread. Periods of hell that lasted several days. At first, I suspected a delayed reaction to so rapidly adjusting my diet and climate. Then I suspected a virus or some other contagion. But neither diagnosis accounted adequately for what was not an unfamiliar feeling. In fact, I knew it well. Felt it for as long as I could remember, and most acutely, in my stomach. As the phantom pain of a severed cord that once nourished and nurtured me. Only this time it wasn't food I was going without. It was nourishment of a kind sought by the soul. That voice beneath the surface we take for self. By now I'd run far enough to know that this time I'd do well to turn around and listen. So I did. And there I found a dreamer, holding a pen, longing to tell his story. I gathered him in my arms and carried him to a desk and chair. While his fingers tumbled sentences, I made him cups of tea. And when he finished a page, I read it back to him and listened for his suggestions. We sat together, the way we're sitting now, grateful to have found a way to be heard. This is a remote voice podcast, and I'm Daniel Silva. And this is the fourth letter, the fourth letter home in a series of letters that I'm writing from Arnhem Land. And that was the first section of the letter. But after I wrote it, I felt that that section was somewhat of a prologue, belated, but nevertheless... And it was after writing this particular letter that I decided to start publishing these words on my blog and imagining that I might um, turn them into some kind of podcast. I received so much wonderful feedback and love and encouragement and that seemed to soften my guard towards a part of myself that when I allow myself to acknowledge is something I've always known, that it's words 
that I that I that I understand in some way that makes everything else material. So this is the fourth letter and it's right now bird o'clock in Gapuyak. So if you can hear birds in the background, that's why. Which is quite fitting, I think, for this letter. And it's called Interrelated. If you'd like to read the written version, that's on my website, danielsilver.work. And you can also subscribe to receive these letters by email. Okay. So, picking up letter number four. I've made progress on other fronts, too. I set up a new workshop space for high school kids who aren't managing regular attendance at Gapuyak School. I called it Young Artists. We meet Monday and Tuesday afternoons to hang out and paint whatever's on hand. And there's plenty on hand. I chose an area of the school formerly occupied by discarded building materials. Sheets of corrugated iron, concrete boards, pieces of timber and decommissioned wheelbarrows. There's also a picnic table for those preferring to sip cold water and shoot the breeze. I seek out the kids who've taken to scribbling insolent tags on walls and doors. I say to them, practice here as much as you want, because honestly, the way you write fuck you is pretty amateurish. They laugh. We both know I'm not going to solve the graffiti problem. But at the very least, I'm hoping to improve the graffiti standard. And deeper than that, I'm hoping to provide a space for these kids to play out the tension between the kind of individualism they see on the internet and the kind of interrelatedness they've inherited. Since my official adoption by a Jungle family, I've caught a glimpse of that interrelatedness. But before I describe it, let me just say, I am by no means an expert in Jungle kinship. My only hope for this incomplete account is to communicate something of its staggering sublimity. Narakung Amma Dual Rose. My adopted mother is Rose. Strange as it may seem, that symbol phrase connects me to a living system of information so complex that comparing it to the whole of the internet is an oversimplification. When I tell it to someone, that person knows immediately by what familial title I'm to be called. Examples include Wawa, which means uncle, Mukul, which means auntie, Yapa, which means sister, and Wako, which as it turns out, means son. Confused? I was too. But then I learned about an important aspect of the system. That is, upon adoption I was assigned one of eight possible skin names. You can think of a skin name like a tribal affiliation. But children are not born into the same tribe as their parents. Instead, they're assigned a skin name on a rotating basis. And marriages are predestined by law and custom to take place between particular tribes. So, assuming I were to marry according to law and custom, it's effectively possible to know the set of people who would make up my kin and in-laws. Hence, there are people in my network that call me Bapi, which means father. Again, 
It's worth emphasizing that we don't really have English words for the kind of kin relationships that exist in Jungle culture. But for the purposes of this account, I'm going to talk about the relationship between Ngamma and Wako, using the English words mother and son. As in Western culture, mother and son interact in a customary way. Son is nurtured by mother, who in turn fulfills an obligation to guide and instruct. That includes passing on specific knowledge that son needs to know. And the way that knowledge is passed on is through song, story, dance and ritual. In Jungle culture, as in Western culture, there are songs that mothers traditionally sing to their sons. However, where things differ is that in Jungle culture, the songs that mothers sing are not generic. To understand what I mean, you need to know two details about Jungle personhood. First, every Jungle person is related to a specific geographic location, determined by the moment during pregnancy when the spirit of the person is said to have entered the body. Thus, when a mother sings to her son, she sings from one specific place to another, hence the term songline. Her songs may include information about the history of the place, where it is, how to take care of it, and the kinds of things that might be sought there. Second, every kin relationship is mapped onto specific parts of the body. For example, Ngamma relates to the heart and belly. Thus, the song lines weave psychosomatic connections between people and places, so much so that sons relate to the land of their mothers in the same way they relate to the mothers themselves. Mind blown? I hope so. It's a lot to take in. So Jungle people keep track of it all through a host of rituals and ceremonies. For example, they might paint colours and patterns that symbolise particular kin relationships on specific parts of the body during ceremony along with other kinds of information, such as relationships with totem animals, elements, and groups of people. But I'll leave that for another day. For now it's enough to consider what it might be like for a teenager born into a network of cosmic interrelatedness to listen to songs from the canon of Western pop culture. It's no wonder they're responding well to the offer of a space to hang out and paint the walls. Young Artists is a Refuge, and so far it's working. As are my formal classes, I've made sure to focus them entirely on place, using maps as a scaffold for various kinds of learning. As you might expect, given what I've described in this and previous letters, nature and arts-based education are no-brainers out here. That the Department of Education considers it remotely appropriate to apply a national education standard in a place so self-evidently unique is at best an absurdity. At worst, it runs the risk of repeating the mistakes made by assimilationists in the early part of the 20th century, who lined people up for a standard mix of force-fed information and washed it down with some superficial accolade. If we only turned around and listened, we'd realise that a disinterested child is more likely the result of inaccessible content than an illability to concentrate. That should be obvious to anyone who's ever put down a book and said something like, I just can't get into it, to which I'd respond, if that's the case, then one of two things is true. 
either the writing is of a quality incapable of conjuring sufficient depth of field, or you don't have the cultural capital to turn the descriptive language into a meaningful reality. Then you might say, what do you mean? And I'd say, well, to find a text interesting, it's not enough to simply know how to read. The author's words create a world that you can actually get into, but the author can't describe every aspect of that world. He or she assumes you'll bring a certain amount of prior understanding to the table to fill in the gaps. If you don't have that prior understanding, the world the text creates will remain out of reach. It will lack meaning. But some books are read by lots of people across cultures and contexts. How is that possible? Because people are far more alike than different. There are lots of things that overlap cultural boundaries. The more boundaries a thing overlaps, the closer it gets to being universal. But the list of books that approach universality is a lot shorter than the list of books per se. Okay, so what you're saying is, kids need to read and write about things they're interested in, and their interests have a lot to do with culture. Yes. So what are Jungle kids interested in? Well, they're interested in place. They love being on country, making things with their hands, and physical activities like sport and hunting. Great. So we should get them to read and write about that. Not so fast. Why? Because they're not used to reading and writing about those things. They're used to dancing, singing and painting about them. And they're used to doing them. Does that mean we need to consider alternative approaches to teaching literacy in a Jungle context? Yes. Sounds challenging. Where do we start? We start by understanding what literacy is at the deepest possible level of interpretation. That way we can create the substructure on which a contextualized form of it can be built. Hmm, I'd rather not think about things so deeply. I know. Okay, so what is literacy at the deepest possible level of interpretation? Well, it's the abstraction of meaning into recognizable symbolic representations arranged relative to one another in space and time. Please explain. Okay. You can't read a sentence if you don't know what the words mean. But you also can't read it if the words aren't in the correct order, with adequate space between them. So we should begin by teaching kids to abstract information into symbols, then arrange those symbols in ways that make them readable? Exactly. And to make things meaningful, we should relate everything to nature, art and physical activity? Now you're getting it. If only there was an art form that used symbols to represent features of specific places in nature, something that also lent itself to physical activities. Wait a minute. Maps. Yep. We could create maps of this place, then add symbols to represent its features and inhabitants. We could go places and visually represent our journeys. Eventually we could even write stories about them, turn them into maths problems and science experiments, and we'd end up with beautiful artworks that reflected our learning. Would that work? I don't know, but I'm going to try it, because the price we pay for dumbing down our language to the point where it can be understood by people we've not sought to understand is a lack of depth, and I'm tired of teaching the dazed and confused.
with love, Daniel. Okay, postscripts. Well, that was a strange thing to read. Yeah, reading that dialogue at the end. It's kind of strange. You know, I think... Well, not that I think. When I wrote this letter, I was angry. I was angry, and I was angry because... Well, because I do think that it's absurd to apply a national education standard in a place so self-evidently unique, in a place where the culture is, is based on land and place and, and kin. It doesn't make sense to apply an education system of the mainstream because this isn't the mainstream. It's a different stream. So if ever there was if ever there was a time to consider alternative education, it's this one. And I can even feel that anger now. So I think I needed when I wrote this to debate, you know, I think I wanted to have a debate. I think I wanted to have um I wanted to lock horns on the issue. And obviously I've come here with certain processes and approaches that, re that involve maps. So I also kind of wanted to, I don't know, prove my point, maybe. Anyway, I sort of lost myself. So if I lost you towards the end of that letter, then that's understandable, I think. I think there could be a more skillful way of going about that exchange. <laughs> now that I read that out loud and record it. Anyway, I will leave that there in the, in the, in the muck of what are we doing? What are we doing? Trying to teach kids that don't speak our language as if they'd read every book we'd ever read. I think, oh, I'm not finished, am I? I think that sometimes, I don't, I don't quite know how to say this. It's almost like there is a depth to our culture that for reasons that might be something like having been hurt by it. You know, I think, I think a large part of the depth of our culture is taken up by the same material which has produced our religions. And I think that people are hurt by that and so turn away from that depth sometimes. But without it, with, 
without it, then when we, without it, if we, if we encounter another, if we encounter an other, if we don't bring that depth with us, then that encounter is shallow. And maybe I'm drawing a long bow here, and maybe I'm rambling, and forgive me if it sounds that way. But I do think that some people travel far and wide for depth, and they find it. And I'm thinking here of people who um, find what they're looking for in Eastern religion and philosophy. and And, and you know, fine and fair enough, you know, because maybe it is inaccessible what we have. And who's we anyway? I don't know. I'm not sure that I can finish this point. guess I need a story. <laughs> okay, that's the end of Letters Home number four. And I hope you found it meaningful. And if you'd like to receive the written and well thought out considered versions of these, you can do so by subscribing at my website, danielsilver.work. And I'll be back with number five.